So, ladies and gentlemen, the international situation is, I think, more dangerous and more unpredictable than at any time in my 40 years as a diplomat. And actually, I think more than at any time since the end of the Second World War. And my aim in this lecture is to, first of all, give you some diagnosis uh, of the trends in the world and the turbulent global landscape uh, that we see, but also to end with some thoughts about what Britain's defense and security priorities should be uh, in this unpredictable world. <clears throat> and because public debate about these issues is so important, uh, including uh, having young people's voices in the debate, I hope that uh, there will be plenty of um, challenging questions in the time remaining at the end. Analysis is made more difficult by the fact that we are seeing a combination of some very significant long-term trends and some very short-term disruptive upheavals as well. I'll start with the long-term trends. <clears throat> they are familiar to you, I'm sure, but, but worth just getting in check, sketching in quickly. The international rules-based system, uh, which is set out in the UN Charter of 1945, is under enormous strain now. Why is that? Partly because uh, the Americans and their allies, including Britain, um, which were the, uh, those who underpinned and underwrote the international system, are in retreat from the leadership role uh, they played over decades. I would say that retreat began with the disastrous intervention in Iraq uh, in 2003, together with that long and ultimately unsuccessful military campaign in Afghanistan, I think that undermined public confidence in the competence of those making our defense and foreign policy. It also damaged our authority in the eyes of many countries to uphold the international rules that they felt that we'd broken in Iraq. Then came the 2008 financial crash, which again tarnished the brand of liberal democracy uh, and uh, free trade in the world. And again, it, it led publics to believe that the elites were not um, handling the outcome of that crisis in a way that, that was equal. In other words, uh, that the burden fell on the poorer, on the less well-off from that financial crisis. And I think you can trace the current populism in the politics in the US, in the UK, and some other countries to some combination of those events, a real loss of confidence in the competence of our elites. Chinese and Russian leaders have been quick to move into the vacuum that that has left in international affairs. For three decades after Deng Xiaoping in China, uh, Chinese presidents were prepared to work with the West uh, to, uh, in the, to help grow the Chinese economy uh, because they believed that that was the way to strengthen China uh, by uh, economic cooperation and integration into the Western system. By the time Xi Jinping arrived as president in 2011, China had grown uh, into a very powerful uh, economic superpower. And emboldened by that, he tore up the previous policy of cautious cooperation with the West. And we can now see very clearly that China is flexing its muscles in pursuing political and military dominance in Asia, in competition with the US, and in trying to control the next generation technology in their own interests. 
Russia, under President Putin, is a disruptor. It's a power that is declining economically uh, and is pursuing an aggressive foreign policy, partly to compensate for that. Looking back, the West was too mild in its reaction to Putin's partial invasion of Georgia in 2008, his invasion of uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine in 2014. And now he's made an even more desperate gamble. I'll come back to that war in, Iraq, in Ukraine. So we're dealing not only with shifting tectonic plates, um, shift of economic power towards Asia, emergence of authoritarian leaders um, in many countries who reject any notion that there is a universally binding set of rules and values such as human rights and the rule of law. If you think of President Erdogan in Turkey, President Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, and the recently retired President Duterte in uh, Philippines, they're all approaching the idea of an international order like that. We're also seeing a fracturing of the global trading system the prospect of something similar happening in the world's financial system. We're seeing the emergence of two internets, an internet of control and state supervision uh, in China uh, and its uh, countries dependent on it, and the internet dominated by the American capitalist giants. We're waking up to the fact that the model offered by China is quite attractive to a large number of rulers around the world. It's a model that says you don't have to have democracy and freedom of expression in order to have economic prosperity. They're trying to show that they've broken that link and quite a lot of people around the world find that quite attractive. That is a real challenge, I believe, for the Western countries. So much for the longer term trends. Overlaying that is this series of upheavals that have come thick and fast in our world in the last few years. The COVID pandemic not only took an awful human toll and set back the global economy, but it also exacerbated tensions between the major powers, in particular by disrupting supply chains uh, and uh, in a way casting China as the villain uh, for Western countries and exacerbating China's uh, isolation from the West. It was just at this moment that Britain chose to leave the EU, not, I would say, a very auspicious time for Britain to uh, venture out into the world as an independent country trying to champion um, uh, free trade uh, and, uh, and open borders. And Brexit has been a massive dislocation for this country. Uh, it was partly sold as the opportunity to go and champion uh, free trade. But apart from throwing up barriers to trade with our nearest neighbors and largest trading partners, we've also found it very difficult to land useful free trade agreements with other countries, in particular America. Britain left the EU at a time when global trade was actually shrinking and the barriers were rising. And although economists will disagree on exactly how much of a hit that, um, that uh, produced for the British economy, it's nonetheless clear that it was significant and it is going to go on for many years. And the way Brexit was handled, the chaos in British politics over several years, has itself damaged Britain's reputation around the world uh, as a country 
that is stable, that has a good pragmatic sense of its own interest, and that is uh, an upholder of the rule of law. The threats to break international law over the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol have really surprised uh, and disturbed many countries around the world who never expected to hear that from the country that was the, uh, the mother of uh, the uh, idea of the rule of law uh, and parliamentary sovereignty. And now on top of that, we have the largest war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Taken together, that is a pretty daunting set of issues for any British government to handle, let alone one that is weakened by a sudden financial crisis of its own making. Before coming to my prescription for what I think uh, Britain can do to rebuild its badly damaged reputation in the world, I want to say a little bit more about the implications of this Ukraine war for European security. I declare an interest because that is my special subject. It's a, a, an issue that I have spent much of my career dealing with from the middle 1970s when I was first posted to the British delegation to NATO in the middle of the Cold War and I watched the East-West confrontation at very close quarters and then again uh, as I was ambassador to NATO uh, after the Iraq war in 2003. And when I talk to uh, audiences about NATO, uh, I often find that it's a rather unknown quantity for people now, not surprisingly, because for 40 years since the end of the Cold War, NATO was not front and center of people's concerns. Uh, it was an organization that got involved with mounting the expeditions to faraway countries, uh, trying to bring stability in the Balkans or uh, in Afghanistan or in Libya. But it was not central to, to what people were thinking about uh, and worrying about for their future. So I hope that a few minutes spent on why NATO has proved so durable uh, might be of some interest. The short answer is NATO is a blend of two ingredients. First of all, it's a collective defense organization, uh, as I'm sure everyone knows. Secondly, it's a political alliance committed to promoting democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And those two aspects fit together to produce NATO. A NATO member state can be confident that other members will come to its defense if it's attacked, not just because of words written in a treaty, but because of the strength of shared political commitment among the member states to support each other. The cement that holds NATO together is confidence. The Washington Treaty, which set up NATO in 1949, is not a legally binding text. There's no transfer of sovereignty. It's based on a solemn political commitment, but it preserves discretion for each member state as to how they carry out that commitment. The famous Article 5 of NATO, which you've perhaps heard mentioned, finds a point of balance between these different elements. The American Senate, in the run-up to the NATO Treaty, insisted that there couldn't be any automatic commitment of US forces to the defense of an ally, because it was always the prerogative of the US Senate to send their forces into conflict. The Europeans, led that time by British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin, wanted to make as clear as possible that if an ally was attacked, other members of NATO would come to their support. That's why you get in, in Article 5 this delicate balance. The article talks about uh, each member state taking such action as it deems necessary 
people, including the use of armed force, to restore and maintain security in the North Atlantic area. Such action is it deems necessary. It's not like the text of an EU treaty, which spells out in exhaustive detail exactly what um, the member states are required to do, makes that law in EU countries, makes it subject to uh, testing in a, in a European Parliament. It's a political commitment, a very important one, but it rests on the credibility of the political commitment among allies, confidence that it will be carried out, and in particular, that the Americans would come to the aid of European allies uh, if they were attacked by the Soviet Union uh, when it was first agreed, and, and later, of course, by Russia, including, of course, the full weight of American military power uh, with their nuclear arsenal as well. NATO has always been an unequal alliance. Um, it's always been an alliance of one mega country uh, and many smaller allies um, as well. The US has always been by far the strongest military and economic country in the alliance. And that unbalanced shape could have been uh, a problem if America tried to use its muscle to strong arm European countries into doing things that they didn't want to do. But that's always been avoided. There's always been a kind of mutual dependence. Certainly throughout the Cold War, the Europeans were very, very dependent on the Americans to deter the Soviet Union. But the Americans worked out that they too needed European allies. If they were going to confront the Soviet ambition um, to um, export its model worldwide, they needed allies in Europe uh, and that's what uh, we all provided. And that mutual dependence continued after the Cold War. The Europeans called on the Americans to come to our aid uh, over Bosnia and Kosovo to stop the awful ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. And then when America was attacked uh, on 9-11, the Americans needed the European allies to go with them into Afghanistan uh, to root out the Taliban and try and bring some stability there. So, uh, mutual dependence, mutual interest in seeing NATO survive. And that's why the open doubting of NATO by Donald Trump when he came in to be president of the US was so toxic because it chipped away at that fundamental trust in the US commitment. Fortunately, President Biden understands the importance of the credibility of the US guarantee. And that's just as well because we now have, for the first time in 80 years, a large-scale conventional war in Europe, and the NATO pact of collective defense has become more important than ever. To me, it's quite extraordinary to find that 80 years after the Second World War, we have again got cities being smashed to pieces by artillery fire on our continent, with massive loss of human life uh, and no doubt significant atrocities happening as well. So NATO is back to its initial purpose of 1949, of deterring and defending against threats to the national territory of our member states. Thank goodness NATO never actually lost its focus on that, and it has elaborate plans for the defense of uh, NATO member states' territory. And I think it's responded very professionally to uh, the challenge of this uh, major war that Putin launched uh, in Ukraine. American forces have come back in large numbers to the European continent. Britain has deployed significant numbers of troops to the, uh, almost to the border with Russia in the Baltic states. 
uh, and in Romania, other NATO countries have as well. I think we were often encouraged to see Putin as some sort of master strategist uh, who is unrolling a plan to rebuild Russia's position as a great power and a major force in European security. But his war in Ukraine has not only failed to achieve its military objectives, it's also undermined the reputation of Russia's armed forces. Um, it's been a massive strategic setback for Putin already, whatever the precise outcome of the conflict. And it has left NATO stronger and more purposeful than I can remember at any time in my career. For example, it's transformed the security situation in the north of Europe. Uh, I was in Finland recently. Finland and Sweden have for decades been proud neutral countries, happy to work with NATO, but wanting to stand aside in neutrality. Now both have decided to join NATO. That's an enormous change in the north of Europe, uh, and it makes NATO much stronger and actually much more coherent uh, in defending uh, all that territory. You've all seen reporting of uh, Putin's reckless threats of weapon, nuclear weapons use. In my opinion, he's doing that primarily to frighten us. He knows Western public opinion hasn't thought about nuclear weapons for 40 years, and to hear talk of possible use of nuclear weapons is very scary. But he knows that any use of nuclear weapons would also be catastrophic for Russia, not just because they might land up being used in territory which he now claims is Russian, but it was also completely scupper Putin's relationship with China. The Chinese would be absolutely against the use of nuclear weapons. That really would leave uh, Russia as a pariah in the world. And he knows that NATO is strong. Uh, I think he has no doubt uh, about the strength of the NATO military forces, America first and foremost. So I'm confident that NATO deterrence will hold and that certainly we won't have a Russian attack on NATO territory. And I, I'm as confident as I can be that he wouldn't take the absurd risk of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. <clears throat> but he's using the threat of them, and because Western opinion is not well prepared for that, that can be quite effective. In the immediate future, my uh, guess is that the fighting in Ukraine will subside as the cold weather comes on. Russian troops are demoralized. They are suffering huge losses. They need to pause. They need to resupply. And so I think there will be a reduction in fighting. <clears throat> and through the winter, it will be vital that Western countries continue to support Ukraine in terms of weapons supplies to make sure they're well prepared for the resumption of fighting in the spring and economic support. And it's absolutely vital that we maintain sanctions on Russia, not least to prevent uh, Western technology like microprocessors getting to Russia so they can rebuild their weapon stocks using Western uh, technology. I personally believe that Putin's annexation of the Donbass region uh, a few weeks ago was a desperate effort to find something which he could report to Russian opinion as positive from this gamble that he's taken uh, and that he's losing. But that was already overshadowed by uh, the attacks on the bridge to Crimea and the continued forward movement uh, of Ukrainian forces. So Putin is on the defensive. Uh, it's clear, I think, to increasing uh, range of public opinion in Russia that, that uh, Russia is not doing well in this war. 
I think we will have a bit of a stagnation over the winter and that the fighting will resume uh, in the spring. We also have to recognize that there is a risk of Ukraine fatigue in uh, our own countries as economic pressures build across uh, the winter. Uh, with the spike in energy prices and all the other pressures on cost of living, um, I think there will be more and more questioning in public opinion of is it really the priority to be standing fully behind Ukraine? I think in the UK that is still very widely accepted, although please tell me if you disagree. I think in the US that's true as well. I think across Europe, um, questions are already arising. You can see Hungary is mm, not at all in line with other European countries. The new Italian coalition um, is very divided on Russia and how firm to be. Uh, and I think the debate is spreading as well. So um, I think we have a job to do, uh, and I wish that, that Britain would be as active as possible in doing it, in maintaining support for the tough sanctions policy on Russia. Europe has done remarkably well, in my view. The EU moved far more quickly than I would have expected on sanctions and on supplying uh, weapons to Russia. But the implementation is slowing now, and these fractures that I've been talking about are becoming more apparent. However, if Europe can succeed in weaning itself off dependence on Russian gas, that would be a huge strategic benefit for the West. It would break uh, a major part of Putin's leverage over our countries and prevent him blackmailing European countries using the, the weapon of energy. So there's a big prize for seeing this through and countries like Germany, I think, understand that well. How does this end in Ukraine, I'm often asked. Um, and of course, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's clear that neither side can win an outright victory. Um, there's no prospect, I think, of Russia uh, succeeding in conquering Ukraine. Equally, uh, I don't think Ukraine can push every last Russian soldier out of Ukraine, including Crimea. I also see no prospect that Zelensky would accept a peace settlement in which he signed away parts of Ukrainian sovereign territory to Russia in order to buy peace. That doesn't feel to me like anything he could do after the extraordinary sacrifice and loss of life that Ukraine has been through. So the only other option, which I think is the most likely, is at some point a Korea-style armistice, a truce. A truce meaning the two sides accept that they won't fight any further, can't get any further, that there will be a line of separation uh, which will be overseen by the international community, but neither side will accept <clears throat> that as a permanent settlement uh, and sign a peace treaty. That's been the case on the Korean Peninsula since 1954. Um, and so these things can last a long time. And that's what I would expect to see in Ukraine. That is a far better outcome than the subjugation of Ukraine, which is what Putin set out to do at the beginning. Uh, it leaves a strongly pro-Western, strongly nationalist Ukraine in, in most of the country. But it would also leave a considerable burden on Britain, America, the G7 countries, the EU, um, the international financial institutions to support Ukraine through years of uh, expensive reconstruction. This conflict has also posed some quite difficult questions for the EU. It has to 
now really think about its role in the world. For decades, uh, the EU was an economic superpower and a political and security pygmy. But I don't think that that's tenable anymore. And we've seen in Germany a huge shift of uh, strategic thinking towards accepting Germany must now pull its weight as a security and defense actor. Um, 100 billion euros committed to um, putting right the uh, weaknesses in the German armed forces, a commitment to raise German defense spending to 2% uh, for the foreseeable future. That's all good and is a major um, shift in German security thinking, but to translate that into actual military capability uh, is a long process. It's a long process in terms of buying the equipment and training the troops, but it's an even longer process probably in changing German culture. Um, German has had a very strong pacifist um, culture that preferred to think about treating commerce and, and, and international negotiation as what they were about, uh, and the culture shift towards accepting Germany might have to be prepared to use its military power at least to produce political objectives in stabilizing Europe is a, an enormous shift and that will take time. All of these debates in NATO, in the EU, uh, across our countries will also be affected by what happens in the American presidential elections in 2024. Suppose um, Donald Trump comes back or a Trump-like figure emerges that will send shockwaves again through Europe, given the experience with Trump. It will um, accelerate thinking about European strategic autonomy, Europe being able to stand on its own feet without necessarily depending on American support. And incidentally, as I, as I pass that point, it does strike me as odd that President Putin didn't choose a time when President Trump was in the White House to launch his um, invasion of Ukraine. Just think of how difficult the Western response would have been if we'd had President Trump in the White House. However, luckily for us all, Putin missed that opportunity and President Biden has uh, been very effective in pulling the alliance together. But if the pendulum shifts back to um, an isolationist Trump-like president in the US, um, that will have major implications for how all Europeans think about security. Uh, I would say Britain as well then would have to think very seriously about a closer partnership with our European neighbors. That said, it is not by any means certain that a Republican president would take the same position as Donald Trump on, for example, NATO. I see that in the US Congress there's very strong support for NATO on the Republican side and on the Democrat side. So uh, we should not give up hope, but that is a bit of a cloud hanging over uh, the debate in Europe on security uh, until we know who will be in the White House. Let me mention one other major factor in the minds of defense and security policymakers uh, in our capitals, and that is China. Because although Russia is the immediate threat to our security, China is the bigger, longer-term security risk. While Russia is a declining power, China is vying with the US for economic dominance in the next generation. It's been investing massively uh, in its military forces, including its nuclear forces. NATO at its Madrid summit squarely put China on the agenda of the NATO alliance. Not that NATO is going to go and play a military role in Asia, but that NATO should be aware of what's happening, should be uh, considering the threat that China poses. Um, 
not just in military terms, but in terms of its bid to dominate the next generation of technologies. We are already well aware of the systematic theft of our intellectual property by China, um, their cyber attacks, um, their increasingly aggressive so-called uh, wolf warrior diplomacy. But they are also more present around Europe uh, in military terms as well. The Chinese Navy is very active. Uh, indeed, there was one point a few years ago when there were more Chinese warships in the Mediterranean than French warships. So China is um, increasingly a, a military issue for us in our part of the world as well. And I think we've lacked up to now a place where Europeans and Americans can talk about China, uh, military terms, in terms of its technology threat. I think we need to have a place where we can coordinate policy. Perhaps NATO could do that. NATO already has a close partnership with, with Asian allies like Australia, like Japan, uh, and we could perhaps use NATO as an expanded forum. <clears throat> but um, defining a workable strategy towards China for the next generation uh, is a major task, I think, in front of policymakers uh, all around the Western democracies. So I've ranged fairly widely over this troubled world, although I certainly haven't covered every area of conflict and instability. And I want to give you three thoughts to conclude on British national security policy uh, in, the, in the years to come. And in doing so, um, and I thank you, Mr. Connell for his plug for my book, uh, I'm expanding the analysis that I give in my book where I try to draw on my career as a diplomat to uh, think about how Britain positions itself to be uh, an effective, respected operator in the world uh, in the years ahead. As a preamble to that, let me remind you of um, a comment by William Gladstone in one of his Midlothian speeches in the 1880s. Here is my first principle of foreign policy, good government at home. And I think that that is actually very pertinent today. A country can't be effective abroad if its government is weak at home. To be credible, our political leaders need to convince their interlocutors around the world that they have the authority to deliver on deals and a political lifespan which is measured in more than weeks. Um, the political turmoil in the UK over the last six years really has uh, damaged the credibility of our leaders and that's even more the case at the moment. And getting back to a degree of stability in British politics is a precondition for Britain having real influence and respect in the wider world. So let's hope that happens uh, and carry on on the basis that it does. First conclusion, major war puts everything else into perspective. It's now time for Britain to put aside the kind of exceptionalism and frankly the hubris that has exemplified our foreign policy since the Brexit decision. If you listen to some of the rhetoric, you would think Britain is still a world-leading power in all sorts of areas, still a great power. But if our country has influence, it's going to be by working with friends and allies, coming forward with ideas that help to uh, solve their problems as well as our own, and reinforcing the set of international rules on which we depend so much. The UK response to the Ukraine crisis, I think, has been impressive, and it's a reminder that we can still be an international leader if we have a sound analysis of the problem, good policy ideas, and consistent focus from our political leaders. 
But despite all the efforts of US, Britain, NATO, EU to convince other countries about the threat that Russia poses, there's a very strong message in the fact that over 100 countries have not wanted to get involved at all in sanctions against Russia. They haven't seen it as their problem. There are all sorts of reasons for that, but one of them is that countries like Britain haven't spent enough time in countries further afield talking to them about their issues. Britain has been so consumed by Brexit in the last six years that there hasn't been much active British diplomacy in many parts of the world. So now when British ministers come to countries to say, we need your help over Ukraine, they're inclined to say to us, but what have you done about the problems that matter to us? So I think we need now to be putting much more effort uh, into foreign policy dialogue with countries like India, like South Africa, like Brazil, like Indonesia, big influential countries who at the moment don't see the fact that Putin has ridden roughshod over the rules of international law by uh, invading uh, a smaller and weaker neighbor, uh, and are much more inclined to think, well, it's just another squabble between the East and the West. We've been used to that. Uh, let's let them sort it out. I think if we want these countries to be active in supporting the international rules when they're broken, for example, by putting sanctions on Russia, we need to show that we are actively talking to them about the problems that matter to them, probably first and foremost climate change, but also uh, issues of public health and access to vaccines uh, and many other things. Second, the China threat. I said I think we need to have a proper worked out China strategy. The immediate risk, of course, is of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. I personally think that they will have been quite surprised by the strength of the Western reaction to the invasion of Ukraine. I think they will have, be having to calculate now what would be the impact on us of being decoupled from the SWIFT uh, banking system, for example. So I don't think an attack on Taiwan is imminent, but I also don't think that we can get through the next 10 or 15 years without some major crisis over Taiwan. I think Xi Jinping feels that he He's the one to settle the Taiwan issue while he is in power. And you know, he's just declared himself this week perpetual leader of China, but he can't last forever. So although the US will have the major responsibility for responding to a crisis over Taiwan and upholding the rule of law there, I think Britain as a close ally of America uh, with our global diplomatic service, our global intelligence reach, um, and our powerful military, we also need to be working with the Americans to see what contribution we can make as their closest ally to a crisis on Taiwan. We heard when the government published its integrated review of security last year, quite a lot of talk about the Indo-Pacific tilt. Um, I was always a bit skeptical about that because it sounded more like a slogan than a worked out strategy to me. Um, and of course now the Ukraine war has shown that in fact European security is the center of gravity of British security interests, not the Indo-Pacific. But nonetheless, we do need to be talking to the Americans about a serious China strategy. And it needs to be one which balances um, vigilance over security, clarity in calling out Chinese human rights abuses, but also, given the state of the British economy, preserving access to that huge Chinese market for goods and services 
which don't touch on issues of security and which we are going to need if we're going to grow our way through trade out of our current economic weakness. And I think standing in the City of London, there are probably plenty here who would agree with that. But that's quite a nuanced policy we need to work out. It's not black and white. And of course, uh, rarely is foreign policy black and white. Final conclusion, you'll be glad, and then we shall have time for some questions. My last conclusion and my profound hope uh, is that the British governments in the coming years will use the Ukraine crisis to rebuild a mature working cooperation with the European Union. I think it can start in the area of foreign and security policy where there are no particular legal tangles um, to catch us out as there are in, in trying to um, restore links, for example, in trade or competition policy. But there are also energy <clears throat> issues of energy cooperation, climate cooperation, where we need to be working closely with the European Union. I know there are some discrete talks going on about sanctions policy uh, and Russia, uh, and it was very good that the Prime Minister went to that um, European political community meeting in Prague uh, on the 6th of October. Uh, that was 44 countries outside uh, the EU framework to discuss security. But that is not a substitute for talking to the EU. It has no secretariat, it has no follow-up. Um, it is um, a meeting, a gathering that will happen every six months. It was very good that the Prime Minister used that to agree with President Macron that there will be a Franco-British summit in 2023. The relationship with France has been very broken over recent years, quite largely because of the way uh, the previous Prime Minister handled it and the, the, the mockery and denigration we had of the French President. But we will only have uh, a summit with the French. We will only be able to mend our relations with the EU um, if the government um, uh, pulls back from the threat of unilateral action over the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, that they signed with the EU three years ago. We have a massive Northern Ireland Protocol bill sitting in the House of Lords at the moment, uh, and I hope that we will agree to pause that, to postpone it, to give time to settle that issue through negotiations. If we can do that, that really opens the door to closer cooperation, uh, not just with the EU, but individual European countries, which we really need in today's troubled world. So, uh, major crises uh, put, uh, put things into perspective. They also create opportunities. And I think Putin's massive strategic error in invading Ukraine is leading to a permanent reduction in Russia's leverage over other countries and a strengthening of the NATO alliance. And I think if Western leaders take the right decisions in the months ahead, this awful war in Ukraine can lead to a more stable European security order in the longer term. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, I think that's a fitting objective as we remember the achievements of Peter Naylor and his generation. Thank you very much. Because of the crisis with Ukraine, uh, we're not keeping an eye on events in Africa and South America, particularly with regard to Chinese and Russian activity. Yeah, um, I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, as I say, I think that um, Brexit has consumed so much bandwidth in British politics that there's been very little time to do much foreign policy of the classic kind. British diplomats have been working, but ministers haven't been out and about um, uh, talking to other countries. And Ukraine has now been the central focus, and there's no time for anything else. So I don't see active British foreign policy in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, or in Latin America. And on top of that, Britain has cut its aid program significantly. Uh, 
damaging, in my view, a major soft power asset we had with DFID, uh, which I think was very respected around the world, now fused with the Foreign Office and with its budget cut, British development policy is in a mess, and that is costing us reputation as well. Sorry to be negative, but I'm afraid that's Sir, my view. your question. <clears throat> yes. I think nationalism is the root of all our problems. I wonder if you could address the elephant in the room about the rise of Irish and Scottish nationalism and the possibility there might not be a UK in the next few years to have a joint policy. Well, thank you for a very large question indeed, my goodness. Uh, and it is the elephant in the room. How long can Great Britain be great if, uh, if we have these uh, forces? Um, I mean, I think that Irish and Scottish cases are probably different, and I'm by no means an expert on either. Uh, I think there has been, for a long time, uh, an English problem uh, in our United Kingdom, in the sense that England is 80% of the economy and of the population, uh, and has tended to behave like that. Um, and although uh, there were devolved settlements to the, to the other nations, um, I think we're still a feeling that England called the shots uh, on all the big issues, um, and for example, in relations with the EU. Scottish nationalism has been fueled by the fact that Britain left the EU while Scotland wanted to remain in the EU. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and I, I think probably the idea of a united Ireland has been fueled by um, the whole way the Northern Ireland protocol issue has been handled um, and the fact that now Northern Ireland does manage to have a foot both in the British single market and in the EU single market. Um, and there are perhaps quite a lot of people in Northern Ireland who are thinking that isn't a bad place to be. And indeed, the idea of United Ireland is, is on the agenda in a way it hasn't been. So what do we do about it? Well, um, first of all, I think England needs to take more notice of what's happening in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and factor it more into policy making, reduce the London-centric nature of our policy making. Um, but in the end, we're going to have to tackle the issue of Scottish nationalism one day or another, uh, I guess, with another independence uh, referendum. I don't think that's going to happen soon, but I think you know, if uh, Scotland continues to vote in its own elections for that at one day or another, Westminster will have to face it. It's a huge question, and I think it's going to be settled in decades, not years. It is likely that in the November midterms that Donald Trump will win a landslide uh, victory in America. Now, Donald Trump has already made it clear that he is a supporter and an admirer of President Putin, and he is against us supporting and egging on Zelensky and his corrupt regime in Ukraine in warmongering against Russia. Now, what my question is, is has Donald Trump, perhaps behind the scenes, but perhaps also in public, um, already instructed Liz Truss, the GCHQ, MI6, the European Union, indeed perhaps NATO, to stop warmongering against Russia. Okay, um, all right, thank you. I mean, there are so many assumptions in your question um, that I can't tackle all of them. Um, first of all, no, I don't think it's at all uh, certain that Donald Trump's uh, party or uh, people he backs will secure a landslide in, in the midterm elections. Um, 
until recently, the polling was showing actually that President Biden and the Democrats' uh, candidates were, were doing better. So let's see the result. I think it'll be much closer than you're suggesting. Um, um, Donald Trump doesn't instruct anyone over here, uh, and nor would he if he was president. I think there is certainly an issue, if he became president, where would that leave Western strategy on Ukraine? Of course, that's two years away, and I hope we will have got to this sort of um, armistice situation that I've been talking about. Uh, and I think, I suspect I'm not alone in the room in contesting what you say about uh, Zelensky. Zelensky was attacked uh, by Russia, and Ukraine has responded very bravely and courageously, fighting for their freedom. And I think they've got very strong support in this country for that. <laughs> I'm from Marlborough School for Girls, and my question is, how concerned should we be about the situation in North Korea? In your opinion, is a solution possible with China and Russia's blocking of votes? So the situation in North Korea? Yes. And, the, and Russia and China, could you just repeat? In your opinion, is a UN solution possible with Ru Russia and China's blocking of votes? In the Security mm -hmm. Council blocking of <sighs> I mean, there hasn't been a solution in North Korea for 80 years, uh, and I don't think there's one imminent now, no. Um, I think we have to all live with the fact that North Korea now has nuclear weapons. There's not much point in pretending they don't. Um, but I think rather like I was saying uh, with Russia, I think their intention is to use them to frighten people uh, and to increase their weight in negotiating because they are a nuclear weapon power. Bear in mind that they are very, very dependent on China still in many ways, and the Chinese will be the first to act to stop uh, if there's any side of them looking like they're going to use nuclear weapons. So I think the standoff will continue um, for as long as the North Korean regime have this mindset that the world is against them uh, and that their only way forward is to uh, threaten and menace and, and intimidate uh, in order to try and get their way. Maybe one day there will be a new generation in North Korea who will see things differently, but I think we're in for a continuing long standoff in North Korea, but not, I think, uh, any, any significant threat of them actually using these nuclear weapons. Um, hi. Um, thank you for a, a really fascinating tour of foreign policy. Um, my, uh, my question is really about um, uh, influence at home. Um, London is the laundromat. It's full of, full of Russian money. There have been sanctions that have been, have been implemented, but there are questions about mm. how well, how well and, and um, the, the coverage of those sanctions. Um, mm. China is purchasing the, the services of former British pilots. Um, mm. uh, so um, how, how well are we positioned to um, counter the influence and, uh, of... of um, unfriendly uh, nations here at home? Mm. Well, I think it's a very, very important question. And the answer, I think, is that we have been asleep at the switch for too long, um, accepting London as a major base for uh, yeah, hot money, for money laundering, for oligarchs um, uh, and others, um, parking their money uh, quietly. Uh, and the... Uh, subversive intentions of countries like Russia and China. 
I mean, the very, very large number of Chinese students at uh, British universities is in one way a welcome thing, but what are they up to, many of them? Uh, and you know, are we, do we have our defenses up to protect our intellectual property and our, and our technology secrets and so on? I think, by and large, the answer has been no up to now. On Russian money, the Ukraine war has made it much, much more controversial, of course, to be handling uh, Russian money, and we've seen sanctions on oligarch assets, and we've seen a change in the law to make it easier to know who is the beneficial owner of property in the UK, which was always a very useful uh, place to hide money. So I think the, the, um, uh, the climate is changing on that. Um, on China, also, I mean, people are now more aware of it, but um, there's quite a lot of Chinese influence buying goes on, I think, as well. The best way to tackle this is to call it out, actually, uh, and the more exposure there is of what's going on, uh, of who may be being funded, um, you know, what the intentions are of those who are buying influence in the UK. I mean, that's, that's a very effective way of uh, reducing the, the effectiveness of efforts to uh, subvert, to uh, spread disinformation, uh, or to buy influence and, and, um, and support. And I think the price for those who are taking money from these sort of people is going up all the time. So, you know, as usual, I think publicity is a, is, you know, is a disinfectant here. We need to spread questions a bit around the room. Can I take them down? Yes. So thank you very much for your, your talk. Um, I want to ask a question about a disruptor state which hasn't appeared yet in your uh, conversation, although we have seen them supplying kamikaze uh, drones yes. to the Russians over the last few weeks. Yes. Um, I speak with a kind of skin in the game, as it were, because I'm about to run a conference next month on Iran, what next, yeah. in light of what's happening in the streets of that uh, country and indeed in terms of demonstrations in this city against what uh, the Iranian uh, regime have been doing to their own people. So I suppose my question for you is Iran, what next? Mm. And what can the West collectively do about that? Well, yes, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Haven't the um, young women and girls been courageous in the way they've stood up to repression? I mean, it's been absolutely extraordinary uh, and uh, humbling in a way to see it's been the young women who have risen up against the regime, and who would have thought of that? So, I mean, that makes me a bit um, uh, humble in, in trying to suggest what might happen next, because nobody predicted that. And it's so often the case, isn't it, that these sort of popular uprisings are provoked by just one incident that cuts through uh, and stimulates and inspires people. I'm thinking of the Tunisian um, fruit seller who set himself on fire and set off the Tunisian uh, revolution. And I think you know, the, the, um, how this young lady was treated in jail just became the trigger, for, for, therefore, for a lot of anger and a lot of opposition under the surface. Will it overthrow the theocratic regime and its very, very powerful security forces? I mean, not immediately, I don't think. Um, but, you know, if young women can do this, then perhaps others in society can as well. I think it must have worried the mullahs, at least. Um, and they are, of course, suffering from pretty draconian Western sanctions. And so a lot of, um, you know, basic commodities of life are difficult to get. Inflation is very high. The economy is weak. They're selling their oil mainly to China, I think. Um, so, with Chinese help, they can no doubt struggle on for some more years, but it must be a serious wake-up call. What can the West do? I mean, to, to try and in, 
interfere in or let's say influence uh, opinion inside Iran very difficult, I think. Uh, if we could negotiate an agreement which gave us oversight of their nuclear weapon program, uh, which we've been trying to do for years, subject to uh, Donald Trump making it more difficult, that would be help. Um, keeping up sanctions on the regime and also finding ways to support civil society um, you know, through people-to-people -people links, through bringing people out of Iran, through supporting some of these brave civil society groups inside Iran. But honestly, influencing a country's internal affairs from outside when you don't have much of a presence there is difficult in any country. And I think it's probably particularly difficult in Iran. So in the end, you know, uh, I think it's going to be the Iranian people themselves who find a way of throwing off this regime. Can't come soon enough, can it? <laughs> Being a defence lecturer, I think we need to have a defence voice. Colin, uh, your question. Working. Um, President Macron has often indicated that there should be a, a European army. Do you think he now realises that Europe's best defence really is with NATO? Yeah, I'm not sure that Macron really believes in a European army. I think he has once or twice said it. Um, but the French, as you probably know, are you know, the most um, uh, touchy about their national sovereignty, uh, attached to the independence of their armed forces and their nuclear deterrent, um, and wouldn't for a moment think of diluting the French army in a European army. So I don't believe for a moment that that's French. I think the smaller European countries with weak armed forces have sometimes seen an advantage in promoting the idea of a European army, which would give them a small stake in a larger organization. But it is completely uh, inconceivable, in my view, that the EU would have a, a, an, in, an integrated army of its own. I mean, the, the EU is, as you know, is set up to be a legislating body. Uh, it's got, it's an endless argument about legal bases. It has the commission, it has the parliament, it has the court of justice. All of this is good if you're making laws. It's absolutely useless if you were trying to run military operations. And what NATO has is the integrated military structure. It has a supreme allied commander who takes over uh, if NATO goes into conflict, as you know, um, and is, you know, is geared for military action. The EU is absolutely not. So I have never believed this talk of a European army, that the Europeans should do more to contribute to NATO and improve their own armed forces to use outside NATO if they want to, yes. But any idea of an integrated European army, no. Hello, I'm Abida from Mulberry School for Girls. So we are in a cost of living crisis. Are my taxes about to rise to pay for defense spending mm. and should they? <laughs> wow, <laughs> got me there. Your question. <clears throat> well, first of all, taxes are not being cut because the government ran into a brick wall uh, with the financial markets, as you've seen, and our new chancellor has put them back to where they were. Um, but it's a very good question. If we're going to rise, raise spending on the national health, if we're going to raise spending on defence, if we're going to raise spending on social care, uh, the money's got to come from somewhere. And in the end, it either has to come from borrowing on the markets or taxes. I would say a little bit more on people's taxes to be sure we are safe and secure in this dangerous world would be a good cause. Um, but I'm not a politician that has to sell that to people. Uh, in the end, I think 
it is the most important thing is that the country should be safe and secure and should have the armed forces that can keep us safe. And if that means spending a bit more on defence, then I think uh, politicians should be making the case to all of you taxpayers that that is, that is worth paying. Equally, they need to be thinking how to raise money for properly funding the NHS and other things as well. So uh, it's going to be very difficult, but it shows, you know, it shows how short-sighted the government were in thinking that they could cut taxes as well as do all this good stuff um, to help us with, with uh, energy prices and with the NHS and so on. But I, yes, I would like to see a bit more increase in, uh, more in, a bit more in defence spending because the world has got more dangerous uh, and our armed forces are not, frankly, really ready for that challenge yet. Gladstone emboldens me to take you a bit off piste. Um, I like the dictum about good foreign policy beginning with good government at home. Um, it was in the 70s, I think, that Quentin Hogg commented rather presciently on the rise of what he called the elective dictatorship, the concentration of power in number 10. Mm. And in the House of Lords, we have the second largest legislative chamber in the world after the Chinese National People's Congress. Uh, do you kind a, of you to remind us of that. <laughs> do you see a place for constitutional reform in the UK in the years to come? Oh, I mustn't touch the House of Lords. No, no, no. <laughs> um, yes, I do. I do. Absolutely. Um, I've been very struck over the last decade or so by the powers of the British Prime Minister, who has a working majority in the House of Commons. Because we don't have a written constitution, and uh, it's all conventions. Um, a prime minister can override conventions uh, if he wants to, and Boris Johnson was very inclined to do that. Uh, indeed, I would say a British prime minister with a good majority has more power than most presidents and prime ministers in countries with constitutions that have checks and balances, you know, that have um, a constitution saying what the government can do, what the role of the Supreme Court is, and so on. We don't have that, really, uh, and therefore I think there's a real problem of the dominance of the executive over the legislature. I think we've seen that a lot in the last few years. And all those um, COVID regulations that were made by ministers without consulting parliament, for example, um, now this bill in the Northern Ireland Protocol to give ministers powers basically to make laws and to tear up laws if they choose to. Um, and I think that that's wrong. So I, I think some rebalancing of the power of the prime minister as against the power of parliament would be good. And I think that probably means writing into actual laws some of the things that are now conventions. You've probably heard Peter Hennessy, I've referred to Peter. Peter Hennessy's theory is that our constitution works when the good chaps are in charge, the good chap theory. If it's not good chaps and it's people who are prepared to override conventions, then, then there are no limits, really. On the House of Lords, I mean, I'm a little bit prejudiced, but um, I agree. I mean, the size is completely ridiculous. And you know, I mean, the size is ridiculous because prime ministers keep appointing people to the House of Lords. We had 26 more uh, named last week. Okay, I was named to the House of Lords. Um, but if you ask people in the House of Lords, they would much rather that the thing was slimmed down significantly. Um, and the problem isn't that, you know, people would be prepared to retire and so on. It's that prime ministers keep appointing people. Uh, and so, you know, that's a real problem. But at the end of the day, it does a very good job in going through um, draft laws that come to us from the House of Commons, full of rubbish, full of errors, uh, and in need of real scrutiny. And we work days and nights going through line by line the laws, sending back to the House of Commons lots of amendments. We have judges, we have QCs, we have experienced people from all sorts of walks of life. And I think we don't do a bad job of scrutinizing. 
mostly the House of Commons then throws out what we've done and, and goes on anyway. Um, but nonetheless, somebody's got to do that. And so if you were going to reform the House of Lords, uh, I think to preserve the idea it's a place where um, distinguished people from many, many different walks of life come together uh, and bring their different expertise, not just 200 more politicians elected in a different way. I think if it was just that, we would lose something. You've, you've spoken about Brexit, and you've certainly spoken about Donald Trump, but surely they're, both of those are reflections of their society. They both were popular decisions. Uh, Donald Trump um, was elected, and then uh, he may be elected again. But aren't these really reflections of deeply divided societies? And how does a deeply divided society come up with a sustained, coherent, policy without it just getting flipped again in the next four years? Well, yes. I mean, I agree with you. Yes, it is. Populism is, is an explosion of anger against what people see as uh, unaccountable elites um, uh, failing to protect their interests, basically. Uh, and I mentioned in my, in my talks, I think in the case of the UK, the experience of Iraq and how that failed, the experience of the financial crash and how you know, the, um, the disadvantages of that were not shared equally. All of those things contributed. Um, and then on top of that, I think populism feeds off the um, uh, emotional appeal to identity, um, to quite visceral feelings, tribal feelings of, um, I belong to this group and the other group are the enemy and they are to be, you know, to be destroyed. Um, Social media, I think, encourages the polarization of our societies as well and, and gives populists the platform. Um, and, of course, to say they're populist, you know, they can be popular. You know, the, the appeals they make to people's um, uh, sense of, as I say, of identity, emotional uh, appeals, uh, nostalgic appeals to, you know, the time when America was great or Britain was, you know, the most powerful country in the world. All that is popular and can be powerful. The problem with populists is when they get into office, um, their recipes don't work, uh, and they fairly rapidly become unpopular. Uh, and that's what happened to Trump. Uh, uh, it's what happened to the British government at the moment here as well. So populism tested in um, trying to govern often fails. Uh, and then countries can sometimes come back towards a more centrist position. But I think it's, it's a challenge to the, uh, to the mainstream politicians, uh, to those who do believe that there is something called you know, facts and truth, and uh, it's not all relative and what you want to believe. It's, it's incumbent on them to make a better case, to show people that they too are concerned for the welfare of people, that they're listening, and that they're not aloof, uh, you know, and that they have answers for people's daily problems. Because uh, if they fail to do that, then it leaves the space open to populists. Thank you. My, my question is really about uh, energy and German uh, links with Russia. Yeah. It, it's, it, they've just fired the cyber chief today, actually, uh, because of excess links with Russia. Where did it go wrong in the last 20 years of particularly European and German policy towards Russia, and the, particularly the energy <coughs> policy? Well, yes, long story. Um, I, th I think it's part of this kind of German view of the world was that after the Cold War, they took the peace dividend, um, they dramatically reduced their armed forces, and they concluded that German power in the world could be exercised by commercial diplomacy, by making and selling great things, 
um, and by the power of German influence to negotiate uh, in a peaceful settlements. And I think they applied that you know, everywhere to China, very close relationship with China, and to Russia. And I think that under uh, Chancellor Merkel in particular, they felt they had a close understanding, that they understood the Russians, uh, they knew them, um, they could uh, build a reliable partnership with Russia, uh, and that therefore it was safe to become very dependent on Russian gas, which was cheap, which was plentiful, which helped to fuel the German Industrial Revolution. Um, and they didn't um, do the worst casing of what would happen if there was a sudden change of policy in Russia and the energy dependency became a weapon. I think they were warned about that. I think Britain, France and others warned Germany. But then when Merkel then also um, removed all the nuclear power after Fukushima, um, she made Germany trebly dependent on Russian gas. And with hindsight, that was a massive strategic error. Uh, but I think it came from a sort of German worldview that basically the world was peaceful now and it was all a question of competition and uh, building commercial links and therefore you know, a close commercial and oil and um, energy relationship with Russia you know, was part of that, anchoring everyone into a pattern of, of commercial contact. You know, it was a good policy until it wasn't. Two very quick questions, please, then we must conclude, sir. Uh, my question was uh, regarding, you spoke about collective defense Yes, uh, but there are some conflicting interests, uh, you know, within the group. For example, Hungary. Do you think it can be relied upon if there is a uh, problem? And also, we heard a lot about Finland and Sweden. Sir, we don't have the time for more than one Hungary. Yes. Well, I try to say the subtlety of the NATO commitment is that it doesn't uh, oblige countries to do anything specific. It doesn't say, if one country is attacked, you must provide a division of soldiers or something. It says uh, such action as they deem necessary. So, yeah, if Hungary, in the end, uh, didn't send troops to a collective NATO defense operation, I mean, they would get a lot of criticism, but it wouldn't break NATO. Um, they would have exercised their sovereign right to stand aside from the military action. And that gives NATO a basic flexibility which allows it to cope with countries with different interests and different levels of commitment. One would hope that still the great majority of NATO countries would um, send troops to support an ally being attacked, and if Hungary didn't, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I'd like to say at the outset, I fully support all the direct actions you've mentioned in, in order to um, aid Ukraine, but I'd like to ask you about the sanctions. Um, if I look at... Um, what Russia is doing with energy, with oil, it's selling it now to China and to India. And if you look at the ruble against the pound since all this started, it stood at 100 to the pound before the war. It then shot up to 180. And now, the last time I looked, it was about 60. So it seems to me that we're actually getting poorer while the Russians are getting richer. Is it possible to have effective sanctions against a huge, resource-rich, self-sufficient country like Russia? Can they work? <clears throat> well, I, I, I wouldn't say Russia is a self-sufficient country. Um, it is self-sufficient in energy. Um, but I think where the sanctions are really doing longer-term damage to Russia is in its industry, because it is very dependent on the West for uh, industrial goods, for technology, uh, for things like basic things like, like chips and microprocessors and so on. Um, 
there was a report recently examining Russian recovered weapons from the battlefield in Ukraine, which hadn't exploded, and uh, the analysts found they were stuffed full of Western electronics. Um, and so if uh, the West can make the sanctions effective and deny Russia access to our uh, electronics, then the next generation of weapons won't be as good. So we, I mean, we can't, you can't really stop an oil exporter from exporting oil because you can, you can certainly sanction it you know, for the countries that apply the sanctions, but you can't stop it sending oil to China or Iran or whatever. So it's oil exports uh, short of a blockade, which would be an act of war. There's not much we can do about it. Gas, I mean, the only alternative for Russia to selling the gas to Europe is to sell it to China, build a vast pipeline and sell it to China. I wonder how much it's in Russia's interest to become a junior partner to China, completely dependent uh, on, in terms of its energy relations uh, on China. So I think the problem is Russia in the short term can exercise more squeeze on the Europeans than we can on Russia. But in the longer term, the sanctions are doing real damage to Russia's industrial potential uh, and are reducing Russia's options. And over time, that will, that will show. I mean, Russia's economy will weaken because its industrial potential is being weakened by sanctions. I think that's the best answer I can give you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Martin Elliott. I'm the uh, current provost of Gresham College. Now, over recent weeks, um, the national press has used a great deal of energy uh, searching for an adult in the room of public policy. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree that Lord Ricketts, tonight in his wonderful lecture, is clearly not only that adult in the room, but also able to command it. Uh, we, we're at Gresham College are used to excellent lecturers, um, but it takes a special skill to be both wide-ranging and concise in the same talk, and more so to deliver a talk with the elegance and panache demonstrated by Lord Ricketts tonight. Now, politicians may struggle to be sensible, um, but we can all hope that they listen, and by listening, acquire wisdom. We, the public, I think, should be grateful that we have expert analysts like Lord Ricketts to provide them with advice, and we hope and trust that governments ultimately might heed it. Britain clearly needs it now, even if it's not just one country. We do indeed live in interesting times. And on behalf of the Gresham Society, Gresham College, and of course the Mercers and the Corporation of London, I hope you will join me in once again thanking Lord Peter Ricketts for his magisterial Naylor lecture. Thank you. Very much.